Okay, this is Steve Becker. Uh, I've been a district court judge in Reno County, Kansas uh, for 26 years. Uh, that was followed by a stint in the Kansas legislature. Well, in your new titles, podcast host and Papa Extraordinaire. Grandfather, yes. We, we refer to you as Papa, but yes. Yeah. And I'm Beth White. Currently a stressed mom trying to get everybody ready for Christmas. Just finished my second to last semester before, fingers crossed, going to nursing school. Prior to my that life, this motherhood life, I spent the majority of it in the criminal justice field, specifically with parole, helping individuals reintegrate into society. Oh, yeah, she's my daughter. Oh, yeah, he's my dad. And this is cleared. beautiful daughter (laughs) hi dad (laughs) good day good day all right it's a good day when i'm here with you i'll listen to you well it is almost christmas so (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, but and before once again as we did at the last episode uh, before you launch into our featured exoneree uh, for this episode i once again want to announce yet another uh, exoneration. Woohoo! Um, this one very recent, uh, four days ago, as of the recording of this uh, podcast, December 17, uh, the Innocence Project of New Orleans walked Kendall Gordon out of the courthouse a free man after he had served 12 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Um, There was a home invasion, uh, and a woman was killed. The victim's sister, who was in the house at the time of the crime, um, identified Kendall Gordon as one of the two perpetrators. Shortly after that, uh, the victim's sister uh, recanted uh, that identification. And during a pre-trial hearing in court, there was a motion to suppress filed by the defense. Uh, The victim's sister testified in court that she believed she identified the wrong man and that she had made a mistake. And, of course, the prosecution um, of Mr. Gordon continued. And at the trial, uh, the victim's sister once again recanted her initial identification of Kendall Gordon um, and said that she had made a mistake. Uh, Was there any other evidence tying him to that other than that eyewitness testimony? It's my understanding that was the primary evidence. Or recanting of eyewitness testimony, rather? Nobody likes recanted testimony. I mean, nobody believes recanted testimony. I mean, jurors, anybody, nobody believes it. And uh, which is, I'm saying that because how unfortunate that is. Yeah. Um, And so the prosecutor during the trial, uh, you know, discounted her recantations and the jury, of course, convicted. Uh, Mr. Gordon was 19 years old, 19 years old at the time. Um, this all happened. A conviction occurred in 2012. And this is a uh, DNA exoneration. Uh, you know, 12 years later, they look at the evidence again and um, run some DNA tests and find out that, uh, well, they eliminate 
Kendall Gordon as a as a possible uh, person to have done it. So, um, yeah, and and yet another exoneration. That's one of the uh, goals of this podcast is to. Bring awareness. Bring awareness and educate how frequently this occurs. So I just wanted everybody to know it occurred once again. A huge shout out to the Innocence Project New Orleans. Uh, It's interesting, a tidbit of information um, that was in the story about Mr. Gordon, um, that it was the Kendall Gordon was the 40th innocent person to be exonerated in Louisiana or Mississippi with the help of Innocence Project New Orleans. Wow. Wow. Have they got their hands full. Further, Orleans Parish has the highest per capita known wrongful conviction rate in the country. It has had eight times as many exonerations per capita than the national average. Well, that's saying something if it's more than Oklahoma, that Oklahoma (laughs) County that we were talking about last week. Uh, Now we're talking about Orleans Parish. So, yeah, Innocence Project uh, New Orleans. Kudos, man. You're doing a fantastic job, and you've got a huge mountain ahead of you. So best wishes. Yeah. Well, before we get in, so speaking of eyewitness testimony, I don't know if my brain is just wired differently. Well, I do know that. Uh, Or if I consume too much true crime. But there are times where I catch myself in just very random locations where my mind's free wandering, thinking, okay, if I had to recall this exact incident, if I had to recall that truck driving by, would I be able to recall it? Do you do this or is just something I do? Okay, that's it's something. just you. Okay, man. apparently it's just me. But I challenge people listening to this to maybe try that. Have it not be a specific, very memorable event. Just try to remember, hey, do you think I could remember what color car that was next week or if that was a truck or if that was a sedan? Because it's difficult, I tell you, especially if there's no like memorable factor around it. So many studies have been done about eyewitness identification and how unreliable it is Um, you know and everybody says well I know what I saw well studies show no you really don't know what you saw and uh, I mean it's so prevalent and so recognized that um, here in Kansas we have a cautionary instruction that the judge reads to the jury at the end of the testimony. And if that case uh, involved eyewitness testimony, the judge cautions um, the jury not to take it at face value, but to consider all these factors. And I don't have them in front of me right now, but what was the state of mind of the witness? How long did the witness had to observe Um, what she's testifying about. Had the witness ever known the individual she identified before? Were they under the influence of something? Were they tired? Were they super awake? Were they stressed? Yeah. And when the eyewitness eyewitness (laughs) testifies, I know what I saw. You can't take that. You can't take that at face value. Well, I again bring you back to my grade school child trauma where I was falsely identified as having taken two drinks out of the water fountain when in fact I had not. Maybe that's where that whole trying to recall things, maybe that's a trauma response. Yeah, I don't know. but maybe uh, that wasn't a mistaken identification. Maybe that was just someone out to get you. Nobody would be out to get me. Okay. Well, we might talk about somebody who they were out to get. Very true. Very true. And who would that be? Today? Today. You're going to have to wait a second. What's the deal? Go. Okay. So, as this being the last episode that will air in 2021, Dad and I wanted to thank you all for taking time to listen to this. 
Uh, we say it quite frequently. This is something that dad and I are very passionate about. And given this opportunity to talk about it and have others possibly listen to it, I think for me personally is probably one of my favorite parts of 2021. We are both so fortunate to have such loving, supportive family and friends and even acquaintances who've reached out to us just offering words of encouragement or letting us know that they listen to the episodes. And when I think of wonderful, supportive people, I think of my friend, Teresa. She is a fellow podcast consumer addict, however you want to say it, and she's into true crime. So she is constantly giving me really good recommendations for things I've never even heard of to fill up the playlist, if you will, of podcasts for me. Her and her friend Ashley at work were talking about our last episode, the Curtis McCarty one, and we were texting back and forth. And I thought it would be a good idea if I let her and Ashley pick the next exoneree. So that's where this one comes from is to Teresa and Ashley, you two wonderful human beings. Thank you for listening and showing us such kindness and support. So we have external resources. We do. And let me tell you, you're not going to understand this. It's a TikTok term, but they understood the assignment. Blank guys. Um, They had a list of multiple names of individuals, exonerees, and drew one out of a hat. And they just happened to draw the OG exoneree Stephen Avery out of the hat. Now, if you're a true crime aficionado or into it at all, that name probably sounds familiar to you from the 2015 Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer. But we'll get to that here in a minute. Let's talk about Stephen. Stephen's parents were Alan and Dolores. They got married young. I mean, super young. 16 young. They moved on to a 40-acre farm in 1985, decide, excuse me, in 1965, they decided to turn that 40 acres into a salvage business. Stephen was the second one of four children born, three boys, one girl, and by all accounts, he had a pretty rough childhood. He really struggled with school and education. He went to a special elementary school specifically designed for kids with some learning disabilities. And according to his mom, he didn't make it past the 11th grade. Based on IQ reports later in his life, his IQ was a 70. Uh, Just to give you some reference, the numbers that I found was average was anywhere from 90 to 109 and below average was 70 and below. So he's right there borderline. The majority of Stephen's family, even his extended family, his aunts and uncles all moved on to this 40 acres that his parents owned. Um, often a lot of them living in small houses or trailers on the property. His family was considered outcasts in the society, and they were frequent flyers, as you would say, of the criminal justice system in the courts, whether it be criminal law or family law. All three of the boys, Stephen and his two brothers, were charged with violent crimes at some point in their lives, a lot of which, for the research that I did, stemmed around domestic violence issues. Um, And even his sister was charged with drug crimes later in her life. So they're very involved in the criminal world where that type of behavior is maybe even considered a norm with his family. When Stephen was 18, he met a single mom, Lori Matheson, who he ended up falling in love with and marrying. He and her had four children together, and she helped he helped her raise a son that she had from a previous relationship. By that time when he was 18, not only was he meeting his first love and getting married, he was also starting the adult version of his criminal history, which was quite a lengthy one. When he was 18, he and a friend broke into a local bar, trashed it, stole two cases of beer, a toolbox, $14 in quarters, and two cheese sandwiches. So I think this kind of maybe tags along with the mental ability of him and also how the criminal lifestyle wasn't something that was frowned upon in his family. For that, he was sentenced to 10 months and five years probation. His next charge was one for animal cruelty. Him and two of his friends decided to... uh, They decided to put the house cat, the family house cat on a fire 
but not before dousing it with oil and gasoline. He was convicted of animal cruelty and spent some time in jail. His next conviction is one that's talked a lot about in the Making a Murderer documentary and is relevant. Um, It involves endangering the safety of another person. So this reckless charge is important because it involves an interaction with him and a woman named Sandra Morris. This woman just so happened to be his cousin and just so happened to be married to a sheriff deputy. Chandra uh, told her husband and one of her really good friends, who also was a sheriff deputy, Judy Dovrak, she had saw Stephen in his yard in the middle of the day masturbating, facing the streets. And this wasn't an isolated occurrence. She said he did this quite frequently. She believed taunting him. This came back to Stephen, and he was furious. So he, in his car, saw Chandra driving. He caused her to pull off the road, swerve off the road, had her get out of the vehicle where he brandished a rifle at her, all of which he admits he did. And he did this because he said that the masturbation during the middle of the day in public was a lie, and she needed to stop telling people because he was embarrassed. Uh, Chandra was not alone in the car. Her infant baby was in the back seat. He found or saw the baby in the back seat, and that's why she believes she let him go. According to Stephen, the rifle was not loaded, had no bullets in it. He was just trying to scare her and to stop talking about this masturbation incident. Uh, the Netflix series, like I said, talked a lot about this. Uh, they interviewed Avery's attorney at the time who said that she believed that this case was prosecuted very zealously because of Chandra's ties to law enforcement. So he was charged with this, the endangering the safety of another person, and he was released on bail. July 29th, 1985, around 3 o'clock, Penny Ann Bernstein decided to take a jog along the shoreline of Two Rivers Beach on Lake Michigan. She was a fitness instructor, a very important person of the community, and a local business owner. She made plans with her husband to meet at a specific spot on this jog around four o'clock, and she set off. Halfway through the jog, she noticed an individual, a man that was standing on the shoreline in a full-sleeved leather jacket, and he made some comment or remark to her about lovely day for a jog or something very ominous like that. This stuck out to her because that day it was 85 degrees. It definitely was not full-sleeved leather jacket weather. At some point, she began to notice that he was following her and maybe even stalking her a little bit and even ran into the water, into the shore to try and get away from him. He caught her. He dragged her into the woods where he proceeded to rape her and then strangle her to unconsciousness. My time with parole and victim services, a lot of times refer to that as choking. I was always told choking is internal. Choking is a more comfortable word to use when describing events like that. She wasn't choking. She was strangled. There was external pressure on her neck. So just a little caveat when you're talking about stuff like that. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable using those words, but those are the accurate words. So she strangled to unconsciousness. When she regains consciousness, she walks to the shore where a couple discovers her. They gather her up and take her to the point where she was supposed to meet her husband who, by the way, at this point has already called law enforcement because she is long past that four o'clock time frame where he, she said she would meet him. She's interviewed and taken to the hospital where a rape kid's conducted, and she's interviewed by Sheriff Judy Drovrak, which you may sound familiar because that happens to be the really close friend of Stephen Avery's cousin, Chandra, the one that was brought up just a few minutes ago. She gives a description of the assailants and... The sheriff, uh, Deputy Judy, thinks, huh, that kind of sounds like Stephen Avery. And from that point, it was a go. She Let, would, let me interrupt right please there. Please do. I was let, just going to say one other quick thing. She was shown a lineup of nine individuals, a photo lineup of nine individuals, where she identified Stephen's picture. And I know what you're going to say, so you go. <laughs> let me start right there. Yeah, when there is, of course, when there is a uh, rape victim, a female rape victim, they use a female law enforcement officer um, to do the initial interview. That's, of course, that's reasonable. Uh, The one that did it is the one that uh, 
Beth explained had this back and forth, was involved somehow with the back and forth with Steve Avery. And I guess I and, should say, too, she was not a fan of Stephen Avery's. Yeah, they, none they, of the sheriff's offices were. They were very familiar with him and his family. They were not fans. And uh, Steve Avery had a particular, or no, I should say it the other way around. This deputy, Dvorak, had high animosity towards Stephen Avery before any of this occurred. She is the one who interviewed the victim, and she put in her report when she the words, sounds like Stephen Avery. There's the seed right there. That's where when you wonder about how these wrongful convictions start, we've talked about it before in previous episodes, this is where it starts. They plant the seed. They focus immediately on an individual. The law enforcement gets tunnel vision, and uh, yeah, they didn't investigate this case. They went after Stephen Avery. Yes, for sure. And we'll we'll even get in a little bit more evidence of that here in a second, too, because it's kind of crazy how much they ignored all the other things and just focused on Stephen. And I think... Another thing that I think is very interesting of this, if you do watch Making a Murder, which I highly suggest if you're even remotely interested in this, it's such a sad story, but it's very, very informative, especially when it comes to Penny's um, attack. Because, you, I mean, they have pictures of her, and she was just, I mean, she was bruised and beaten. I mean, it was a vicious attack. It was very vicious, and it's very interesting to hear it from her point of view, too, I feel like. Oh, what I was going to say is that there's this whole discrepancy in the making a murderer when it comes to this uh, image they presented to her because it was not, according to the documentary, now there's a lot of issues around this, a sketch was made based on how she described her attacker, but the theory is that the composite the sketch artist made is actually just a composite he did of an old Stephen Avery mugshot. And I think this is pretty compelling when you watch the documentary. They even transpose the sketch that the artist made over his mugshot and like every single little line, little wisp of hair matches up with this mugshot. Um, they interview this artist who wouldn't you know, going back with trophies and convictions, just so happens to have the sketch and Stephen Avery's mounted and hanging on his wall. What a weird thing to mount um, says that that's not the case, that he did it based on her specifications. But again, what are the odds that every single little line would match up with Stephen Avery's mugshot? And one reason Beth and I are stressing the identification uh, is because there was not one iota of physical evidence linking Stephen Avery to the crime. Reliable. I mean, this is all there is, is is the identification by the victim. Reliable evidence, we'll say. Because I'll, I'll, actually, let's get into it right now. Um, so Peggy, the victim, picked Stephen's picture out of the photo lineup. Stephen was arrested that next day. His uh, clothing was taken into evidence. They recovered three hairs from one of his shirts, and they identified one of those hairs as possibly coming from Penny keyword being possibly, and that was permitted as evidence. Uh, I did find a really interesting article that talks about the cross-examination between the forensic scientist and the defense, and she pretty much says that you can't identify somebody based off a hair analysis, but still it was used as evidence. So we're at the trial already. Peggy identifies Avery as the attacker, and then they bring up that forensic hair analysis, too. That's the state's case. For the defense, Avery has 16 alibi witnesses. Not one, not six, 16 alibi witnesses saying that he could not have committed this crime. One of which, I know you're thinking probably all family, yeah, whatever. No, one of which was a store clerk at a shop co in Green Bay who very vividly remembers Stephen coming in with his wife and his children to buy paint. They received a receipt from this interaction at 5.13 p.m. 
So Penny is pretty certain that attack happened around 3.50 because remember she had that deadline that time she was going to meet her husband at 4 that she didn't want to be late for. So she looked down at her watch before the attack happened. She believed the attack to have occurred or happened maybe 10 to 15 minutes total, the total length of time. So for the timeline to work for Stephen, he would have had to have that 10, 15 minute assault that he did on Peggy, air quotes, he did on Peggy. He would have to leave the shore, leave the forest, come back to the shore where the attack occurred and run or walk a mile back to the nearest parking lot, get in his car, drive to his house, get all, what are we talking Five kids and his wife in the car. Anybody with kids knows getting five kids into a car is no easy feat. So get everybody into the car and then drive the 45 miles to this store, this shop co. And he had to do all of that in about an hour. Of course, they had a police detective recreate this chain of events, not keeping in mind, not doing the loading the family and kids into the car, just all the other events. And he said he was able to have this happen in 57 minutes, which I still kind of doubt. So that's the evidence presented on both sides. The jury deliberated for four hours before they convict Avery on December 14th, 1985. He was sentenced to 32 years in prison, having been found guilty of attempted first degree murder, first degree sexual assault and false imprisonment. Couple other notes I want to uh, mention concerning the trial. Uh, there was a lot of animosity. We've already talked about it, of uh, members of the sheriff's office towards uh, Stephen Avery, and this documentary um, made it very clear that at one point, um, well, they had so later. Later, they obtained some testimony that at one point the sheriff told the district attorney, don't screw this up. I want Avery convicted of the crime. Mm. Um, so that's the law enforcement focusing on an individual. And, uh, and again, a little bit more about this um, identification. It's, it's fascinating um, how how subtle, suggestive... Oh, for sure. Um, ...suggestive identification can be. I mean, uh, Beth talked about the, the sketch that was... They made a very strong point about the sketch was actually taken from uh, the an mugshot an of Stephen Avery, shot. not from the description of the victim. And then after they get the, after he completes the sketch, shows it to the victim, and she says, yeah, that's him. Then the next step in this is they give him uh, a photo lineup, and contained in the lineup is the mugshot of Stephen Avery that was used to make the composite. Yeah. So there it is again. Very suggestive, and guess what? She identifies Stephen Avery. Then, after that, that's still not enough. They have an in-person lineup, which um, in reality isn't done very often, I don't think. Not in my experience. Uh, but they have an in-person, and uh, they, put, they put Stephen Avery in a lineup with people that nowhere don't look anything like him. I mean, he looks like a little boy among these much taller adults. And guess what? She again picked Stephen Avery. So all of this is so suggestive, and it just reinforces the victim's identification. I mean, in her mind, she yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's him. And each time she picks the same guy, and she has to feel pretty good about that. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a crazy, suggestive identification of uh, Mr. But, Avery. And I guess I don't think I made it clear. The very first image she was shown of Stephen Avery is that composite drawing. It's not the actual mugshot. It's the composite drawing, which is eerily similar to that mugshot of Stephen, which she's shown in the second round of events. 
And I think another telling thing is that when they did that in-person lineup with Stephen Avery, that mugshot was old. He didn't look like that anymore. He didn't have the long, scruffy hair or anything like that. So I'm curious to know maybe if everybody around him was so physically different to kind of reiterate the fact that, hey, he does not look like that mugshot that you said was the person who attacked you. But of all these other people, he probably looks the most like it. <laughs> and it's troubling when you have those kind of thoughts about law enforcement. But we'll get to that here in a little bit, too. So the exoneration phrase for Avery was a long one. Um, he lost appeal after appeal, and it seemed really hopeless for him. Uh, in 1995, there was a petition for DNA testing, which was granted, and the DNA was collected from the fingernail scrapings uh, underneath Penny's fingernails. It did return a DNA sample, but it was an unknown sample, and it did not fully exonerate Stephen from being a possible DNA contributor to that. So his petition for a new trial, his motion for a new trial based on that evidence was denied. Very interesting that same year in 1995, keep in mind he was convicted in 1985. Uh, that same year, the local county jail received a phone call from a police detective in a nearby county, Brown County, that they had a prisoner who was admitting to committing a sexual assault a few years ago and was telling them that somebody else was in jail for it. Uh, the jail officer forwarded that information to the detectives. The detectives recall talking to their uh, commanding officer and being told, we already have the right guy. Don't concern yourself with it. So remember that story. April 2002, the Wisconsin Innocence Project becomes involved with Stevens' case, and they obtain a court order for testing of 13 pubic hairs that were recovered from the rape kit. Um, the state objected to this testing. Remember how we talked a couple episodes back? The state has to allow you to test for DNA. It's not just a given. The state was objecting to this DNA testing, go figure. Uh, the judge went ahead and granted the testing, and the DNA collected from the heirs was in, into the FBI DNA database where there was a hit. The hit was not Stephen Avery's. It was of an individual named Gregory Allen. Gregory was a convicted felon who just so happened to have a very similar appearance to Avery. Uh, he was incarcerated at the time for seven, or excuse me, 60 year incarceration for another sexual assault that he happened to commit in Green Bay after Penny's assault. So they identified Gregory Allen as being the contributor of the DNA based on the pubic hairs collected from the rape kit. And September 11, 2003, a motion was granted releasing Stephen Avery from jail. So back to this Gregory Allen. Remember how I told you in 2005, excuse me, in 1995, we're in 2002, no, excuse me, 2003, he was released from prison. In 1995, you remember how I, they received the tip from a police detective that somebody was admitting to these crimes? Do you know who that individual was? Who was it? Gregory Allen. Go figure. So in 95, he was already admitting to these crimes. In 95, they had another person of interest. Well, another person to investigate. Well, actually, in 1985, the year the crime happened, they had another person to investigate. Get this. So it was later discovered um, that Gregory Allen was a local to the community and his photo was not included in a lineup showed to Penny, excuse me, despite the fact that he was local, had a lengthy criminal history and who two years, just two years before the attack took place on Penny was arrested at that same location for exposing himself to another victim and stalking her at that same location. Penny was attacked. This man was committing similar crimes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Maybe the prosecutor or the sheriff's officers, whatever, they didn't remember. False. Allen was prosecuted for that, exposing himself and stalking that victim by the same district attorney who later prosecuted Avery. According to Avery's attorneys, even during Avery's trial, the DA's uh, fellow colleagues at the office were telling him, hey, I think this is Allen. I don't think this is Avery. I think this is Allen that did that. 
There had even been surveillance ordered on Allen 12 days prior to this attack because he was the main suspect in a series of um, peeping Tom cases, including one with an attempted breaking and entering. So he was well known not only to sheriff's officers, but the district attorney at this time for committing those same attacks. And he was the perpetrator of an attack at that same location just a few years before. They did not even feel the need to show Penny his picture despite all of this and pursued Avery. And how could this be? How could this be? Because Gregory Allen did not fit this already established agenda of the investigating agency, and they weren't going to go outside that agenda. Keep in mind, not only had he committed a crime in the same spot, not only was he under surveillance for similar activity at the time, he also outright admitted to doing it a few years later, and they still, they still did nothing. And not only did they still do nothing, when the opportunity came up for DNA testing, they were opposing it. So... He's exonerated in 2003. Um, Stephen goes back to his family's 40-acre farm. He lives in a 10 by 12 foot ice ice fishing shack for a while, which is very remnant for me of Curtis McCarty, who we talked about last week, staying in his parents' basement for seven, nine months. I can't remember. Um, before he moves into a trailer with his girlfriend. Now, I told you all of his family lives on that 40 acres. Steven moved into a trailer owned by a neighbor across the street from his family's property. So he did get off the family property, but it was just across the street. He had a very abusive, tumultuous relationship with this girlfriend. Um, He was even arrested once for violating a uh, disorderly conduct ordinance after an altercation with her where he was just ordered to stay away from her for 72 hours and play like a $250 fine, which going back into that whole domestic violence thread that seems to be intertwined with all of these Avery men. His girlfriend also was struggling with um, substance abuse issues. She was in and out of jail for DUIs. I mean, it was, it was not a healthy environment for sure. During his release, he worked for his parents on the salvage yard, and he was also awarded a $25,000 in compensation by the Wisconsin Claims Board. And he actually stood to get a lot more because the legislator was looking at increasing the cap for wrongful convictions. He received the cap amount, which was $25,000. And keep in mind, I haven't said this yet, but he was incarcerated wrongly for 18 years. So for 18 years, he has reimbursed, recouped $25,000. He also filed a federal lawsuit for $36 million against the county and was, by all accounts was represented by two of the top attorneys at the time. It was looking very favorable for him. On September 11th, 2005, just two years after his release, a 25-year-old photographer, Teresa Halbach, was murdered on his property. Again, that 40-acre lot that his family owned. Her last known whereabouts were at Stephen's residence, and her vehicle was recovered on the family salvage yacht. Uh, they later uh, found her remains or partial remains of hers in a fire pit behind Stephen's house. He and his nephew were both tried and convicted of the crime and are currently serving life sentences. Prior to that conviction, he, re- he reached a settlement uh, for the lawsuit. He filed the federal lawsuit for $400,000. And the state passed a bill originally named after him, but obviously since renamed the criminal justice reform bill. Stephen Avery is one of the only exonerees to be subsequently convicted of a violent crime. Um, The latest data I can find on that's from 2006, but I can't find any other exoneree that has been convicted of a violent crime. He did have some lasting impacts on the exoneree community. He became a model for reform in 2005 when both he and Penny, the victim, supported the adoption of a model eyewitness identification protocols to further prevent wrongful convictions, and that was signed into law by the governor, Jim Doyle. It essentially clarifies eyewitness procedures and how they do DNA testing roles. Uh, Again, into the pop culture Netflix side of things, Netflix released the documentary Making a Murderer, which I very vividly remember watching. I think my husband Walls and I, we binged it in one night, I think. I think we stayed up all night. It's a 10-episode docu-series that was released in 2015. 
And it all came about when two documentarians saw the front page New York Times article about Stephen being charged with the new crime after having been exonerated. It took them 10 years to produce that 10 episode series and over 700 hours of footage they had to go through. That is a lot of footage. I don't want to get too much into the new crime here. I want to focus on his exoneration. Um, but I think it's very telling us, even me, before I was doing this podcast, obviously, watching that documentary and seeing all the misconduct that was done in the first trial. And then you get into the second trial and all the theories that developed out of that. I don't feel that they would have been as popular or as widely accepted if it weren't for all the misconduct in the first trial. I'm not going to talk about whether or not he's guilty of the second one or innocent of the second one. I could say having done more research after watching the documentary, just researching this to do on exoneration, I have a lot strong or less strong convictions about his innocence in the second one, but still there was, he was definitely innocent of the first one, the first uh, conviction he had. He was an exoneree, regardless of how likable or non-likable he was, he did not commit that crime. And it's wrong for him to have spent 18 years in prison for it. One of the articles I read uh, during my research stated a whole bunch of what ifs in the finality of the article. One of the what ifs was, would Teresa still be alive if Stephen was never released, if he was never exonerated? I kind of want to challenge that statement a little bit. And would Teresa still be alive if Stephen was ever not, if Stephen wasn't ever wrongfully convicted? I think that's how that should have been worded, not if he wasn't ever released. What's your thoughts on it, Dad? Thank you, Beth. You're welcome. Quite a story. Oh, it, it is. Every, every time we delve into these exonerations, it's, it makes just great storytelling. One, one tidbit that we talked about in, another, in a previous podcast is that uh, Stephen Avery was never approved for parole because he would not admit his crime. And that is fascinating. If you don't admit the crime, you don't get parole, which means, think about this, which means that if you are wrongfully convicted, you're further punished. You're going to serve more sentence than if you're guilty. Yeah. Okay, try to balance that out in in the scheme of things. So that was, uh, we had a similar situation with... Uh, Eddie, Eddie Lowry. Eddie Lowry. Yeah. He, uh, he finally did admit to something he didn't do just so he could get parole. Crazy. Okay, one statement that, his, that Stephen Avery's post-conviction attorney made just grabbed a hold of me, and I, I really want to uh, talk about this for um, a couple of minutes. Um, the attorney said, quote, the system is designed to perpetuate a conviction as opposed to actually examining whether or not somebody could, in fact, be innocent. And the more I thought about it, the more important, the that, that is a great observation, and it is so true. Um, appeals courts want to affirm the trial court. Beth, in those many years I was on the bench, uh, and a case out of my court was appealed, and the appellate opinion would come back, and it would say, we must give deference to the trial court. Oh, that made me feel so good. <laughs> you know, the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court is saying we must respect the trial court um, and the findings made there. So this attorney is spot on that the system is designed to perpetuate the conviction. And the more I thought about that, um, years ago, I read a book that I, I'm still thinking about, and it came to mind when, I'm, when I was delving into this. That, and the book is um, 
The author is Stephen King, and the name of the book is 11-22-63. And it's about time travel, but we all know that King can make anything, um, anything work. But it's about this individual who has the ability to go back into the past, and he does so with the purpose to alter something that occurs and the is and his motive is to make it a better world he's his thought is if i can change this one event then the world as i know it will be a better place which never ends up well <laughs> so that was the intent but what this individual found when he was in the past and he was coming towards this event, there were all these obstacles in his way. And there was a force that put these obstacles and, uh, in front of him to keep him from accomplishing this. There was this force that didn't want that to happen. And the closer he got to it, the greater the obstacles would be. Became. Yeah. It, it, it just, I found that so fascinating. And then I thought, well, that's what we're dealing yeah, with that, here. That's, sure. the, that's our legal system. When a defense counsel files something. For like it to test DNA, they, DNA evidence. Yeah, they want to go back into, let's go back in time and pick this one particular case and change the outcome. That's what the defense counsel's yeah. wanting, and the system says, no, no we're not going to do that because we like finality. The case is over. The jury found him guilty. We are not going to revisit it. We are not going to release that evidence to have it. Leave, leave well enough alone. The, yes, yeah. they don't. And so what do you got when you reopen it? And you exonerate them. Now you've got an open case that you need to solve. The whole system is built to perpetuate a conviction. And imagine the obstacle that is to the innocence projects um, fighting tooth and nail, trying to get the courts. The courts don't look for evidence Wrong. of innocence yeah they don't review the whole case to see if there's any indication of evidence of innocence they look at the case for everything that supports a conviction so they the appellate courts want to affirm the trial court that's their default position and they don't review the case looking for innocence that's huge that's huge. Yeah, for I mean, sure. what a burden that is to overcome. Okay, so tagging along with what you just said, I'm going to get on my own soapbox here for a minute. I, we haven't addressed this in the podcast yet, but dealing with the victims of wrongful convictions, obviously the people wrongfully convicted, the families, the victims, after we recorded the Curtis McCarty episode, I just kept thinking about that poor woman's family and how they had to endure two trials, recounting all the horrific things that happened to her and three death penalty hearings regarding it, all for it not to even be the person that committed the crime. But I think another victim of wrongful conviction is us society as a whole. I feel like law enforcement officers and prosecutors should be held to a higher standard. I shouldn't be able to think in my head, even if I'm on a witness or sitting in a jury panel, I shouldn't have to wonder if that law enforcement officer is lying to me, if that serologist is presenting false facts. That's wrong. That's not something that should be going through my head because I should be able to trust what they're telling me is the truth. And cases like this that perpetuate that, that's what's wrong with our criminal justice system. And that's why this continues to happen. 
And as we're trying to show you, these aren't isolated incidents. This happens all the time. We're fortunate enough to have the stories of these exonerees on this high level dealing with death penalty cases and individuals who've spent decades in prison, but we're not even, I mean, there's not really even data out there on just simple crimes that this probably occurs in too, like simple possessions where people are only in in jail for prison for months at a time. No one's advocating for their release for wrongful convictions, despite some of these same practices being used. I think that's something we should definitely think about and held our elected officials to better and higher standards. Oh, that brings up one other point up coattail on there is, and I, perhaps I can provide the name of the, uh, this, uh, the individual that is the source of this, but he said, you will never see the headline millionaire is exonerated for a crime he did not commit. That's never, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. Why is that? Why? This <laughs> Could it have something to do with maybe their defense team or their resources available? I don't know. I don't know. But you're not going to see, you're not going to see that headline. Who? These exonerees we talk about, they're, I don't know, they're wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Eddie Lowry. And, I tell you what, Eddie Lowry is my new hero. He is just such a kind man. Okay, keep going. No, I, I think that's it. I got to do some more research before I do. So to be continued? Before. 2022. To be continued, maybe next year. So again, do you have anything else to add? I do. I want to echo what you opened okay. with. I'm so grateful for our listeners. I, Beth and I have so much fun doing this. And uh, we, yeah, I keep talking about our purpose or uh, what we want to accomplish here. And I'm, I'm hope we're doing it. So, um you be safe man be safe that it's it's not a, it's not safe out there <laughs> so be careful let me put it that way be careful have a wonderful holiday and uh we'll have another one for you next year yep and thank you Teresa and Ashley for being so wonderful and supportive If you want to reach out to us or you have suggestions for our next exoneree, you can get us on Facebook at Cleared Podcast or Instagram at Cleared Pod. And until then, we'll see you next time. And a special shout out to our producer, Christopher Acker. Um, He helps us so much to get this out to you. Thank you, Chris. Assault City Sound Production.